And in my research, I found numerous songs, popular songs, um, with lyrics about housewives falling in love with the Icemen, um, or examples of Valentine's Day cards that included romantic puns about the Icemen. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's Eugene O'Neill's famous play, The Iceman Cometh, whose title is derived from the punchline of the joke the protagonist tells about his wife having an affair with the Iceman. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Amy Brady. She's the executive director and publisher of Orion Magazine and co-editor of The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. She has published widely on how the climate crisis continues to influence art and culture and has made appearances on the BBC, NPR and PBS. She holds a PhD in Literature and American Studies and has won writing and research awards from the National Science Foundation, the Breadloaf Environmental Writers Conference, and the Library of Congress. And she's here today to talk to us about her book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Amy, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. So what inspired you to write a book about the history of ice in America? About five years ago, a brutal heat wave gripped the planet, uh, one similar to what many people are experiencing this summer. Um, and it was so bad that it knocked out the power to uh, my family's house, um, where I was visiting at the time, uh, my parents' house. And so we piled into their car and we went to a nearby gas station that was operating on a, gener on a generator. And when I went inside, I started to fill a cup with ice so that I could get a cool glass of iced tea to cool down and to feel more comfortable. And as I was watching the ice cubes fall, it occurred to me that I hadn't thought twice about whether ice would be available there. And then I thought if I had gone a mile in the other direction to the nearby grocery store, I could have bought a bag of ice there. No question about it. And it struck me in that moment of how unusual that was in a global context, because when I've traveled elsewhere outside the United States, that's not the case. Uh, you know, if you dare to order a glass of water or tea with ice in it when you're sitting at, for example, a Parisian cafe, you're going to get a very strange look. <laughs> so I was suddenly very curious about why ice in America was everywhere. And when the electricity came back on and I did some cursory research, I couldn't find a satisfactory answer to that question. So I dived deeper into the history and slowly but surely a more complete history revealed itself. And it was one of the strangest and wildest stories I've, I've ever read. And so uh, I knew then I, I needed to put this in a book. Ice is definitely one of those things, you're totally right, that has become so like banal to us. Um, I live in the UK now and there's plenty of ice here. You know, you usually get ice uh, in your water, but I definitely know what you mean by there are places in Europe where you go and like ice is not a default and it can be difficult to find it in hotels, in um, like little convenience stores. I'm originally from North America, from Canada. So I am very used to that, the ubiquity of ice everywhere. Um, and it's something I didn't really think about. So it was fascinating to read the book and hear about the history of ice going from not ubiquitous at all, and in fact, being a luxury good to being something that is so um, everyday in North America. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's not that long of a history. Um, you know, the American ice trade was launched just 200 years ago. And prior to the ice trade, which brought ice to people living in warm climates where it doesn't uh, form naturally or rarely forms naturally, you know, prior to that, uh, it was a commodity uh, or a luxury of people who lived in cold climates and really a a luxury of the wealthy because you had to have land to be able to have a an ice house in which to store the ice so that you could use it Um, and ice was also quite dangerous to harvest and so there weren't many people who were willing to risk their lives unless they were uh, servants or in some cases enslaved servants who would do that dangerous dirty work you know for for their the a wealthy person, so um, yeah, you know it really it really uh, took off in just two hundred years um, and and changed everything. So, what did ice harvesting look like back in those days when it was such a, a novel luxury? When you had to have the land, when it was literally about being able to cut pieces of ice out of lakes and rivers, what did that actually like look like? What were the logistics there? It was a dangerous, dirty business. Uh, it took place, um, as you would expect, in uh, cold climates in the winter time. So, in places like where I am now in um, in New England, um, you know, during the the coldest weeks of the year, when ice would freeze to a depth that could support the weight of the the men that were carving the ice, and so that the ice that came out of the the water was thick enough to to actually store. Um, In order to get that ice, uh, several men and horses would walk out onto the frozen plain with giant saws that they would use to cut into the ice to form squares, and then use long poles to float the ice blocks toward the shore, where uh, men and horses would be waiting to heave the blocks out of the frozen water and into the back of wagons so that it could be delivered to to ice houses uh, in the region. Um, It was very difficult uh, to see where the ice was thinner in in places uh, and, and dangerously thin. And so it wasn't uncommon for men and horses to fall through the ice, um, sometimes to their deaths. Uh, and, um, you know, and the, the other thing too that is kind of uh, hard to think about today is that you know, the, the use of horses on the ice was to, you know, both to pull the ice out, but it was also to help carve the ice. Um, they could would pull these large, um, like cutting machines that would help uh, to speed up the, the ice harvesting. And, you know, horses being the mammals that they are frequently emptied their bowels right there on the ice that would soon touch the mouths of thirsty Americans everywhere. So it wasn't uncommon for ice harvesting crews to employ a person who was called the ice slayer. And this person would pull a large metal scraper called an ice sleigh that would walk behind the horses. And the uh, the ice sleigh would slough off the horse's waist. Uh, and it got its name by the oily shine <laughs> that it left behind. Oof! <laughs> what a description. <laughs> <laughs> what a job to have as well. 
<laughs> yeah, imagine putting that on your on your tax forms. <laughs> yeah, definitely a huge amount of work that is a foreign concept to us here today. Um, and as you mentioned uh, before, ice was something that only people in the northern climates had access to in places where water in rivers and lakes would actually freeze. But there are, of course, a lot of people living in places around the world, including uh, in the U.S., uh, farther south in the U.S., where it just never really gets that cold. So you never get ice down there. What was living without ice and, broadly speaking, without cooling like? Well, it's also kind of unpleasant to think about, at least from my perspective, you know, somebody who even in winter likes to put cubes of ice <laughs> in my in my water or my tea. Um, you know, uh, cold water uh, just wasn't readily available. So um, people who were sick with fever, um, you know, it was difficult to to find ways to cool them down. Um, you know, uh, people who are injured, you know, today we think of uh, nothing really of getting a few ice cubes and wrapping them in a cloth and holding it to a swollen elbow or a twisted ankle. And that wasn't possible back then. Um, and, you know, ice in the early days was also used to preserve perishable foods. And within an area without ice, they would use imperfect methods like canning or the use of salt, um, and which were methods that were quite imperfect. And so food poisoning ran rampant. It was a top five killer for young people and the elderly uh, until the arrival of ice, which greatly improved uh, the, the health of, of everyone. So we're going to dig into the history of how ice became the commodity it is now, the sort of ubiquitous commodity. But uh, one of the interesting things uh, that you talk about in the book, and that sort of comes up over and over again, is how... Uh, um, in depth, the history of ice in the US is tied to kind of the advent of modern marketing. Marketing really made ice uh, into a different thing. Um, people had to be persuaded that actually this was a good idea and there was a utility to this thing or a luxury to it. Um, it was fascinating to, to read how much marketing was involved in making ice what it is today. Yeah, well, when Frederick Tudor, the, the man who launched the American ice trade, first started selling ice to people in warm climates, what had never occurred to him until he got there was that for people living in places where ice didn't form naturally, to look at a cube of ice would be like looking at a unicorn. It, it was this magical like substance um, that they wouldn't immediately know how to, to use. And so he had to build both interest and an infrastructure to support, support the ice. And he did that by showing people in real time how to use ice to make the most delicious things, um, cocktails, um, ice water, which was, would have been a novelty, uh, ice cream, which um, absolutely was a novelty. And the, the important thing, too, about his marketing plan is that all, all of these things were luxuries of the wealthy, you know, people who had long had access to ice in northern climates. Um, and even in warmer climates, things like milk and sugar that you would need to make ice cream 
they were very expensive commodities. And so ice cream was an expensive thing to make. And so ice developed this aspirational like quality, something to strive to own. And that in and of itself was also very appealing, especially to um, the American people where, you know, even in the early 19th century, there was this collective belief in upward class mobility. So um, yeah, striving for luxury ice became inherent in the marketing plan. Let's dive a little bit more into Frederick Tudor because he is a very interesting character. Um, So give us a, a quick overview of who Frederick Tudor was and how he got involved in ice. Well, Tudor was a wealthy, eccentric Bostonian who in his early 20s landed on the idea to carve blocks of ice out of the lake on his family estate and to sell it to warm people around uh, to living uh, in warm places around the world. And um, at first, everyone thought he was a madman for even suggesting the idea. Um, nobody had proven that it was possible even to ship ice at long distances. Um, and remember, this was before the, this was in 1806. So this was before the railroads. So the only way to get ice to Southern states and territories was, was via water, via ship. Um, so he, you know, he, he had to prove that that was possible. And then he had to prove that people would pay for it, um, which was also an absurd idea to his peers living in Massachusetts, where ice was just available <laughs> all the time. It just, it didn't occur to them to think that anybody would actually pay for something that formed naturally in their own backyard. Um, so yeah, he had a vision. And he uh, did figure out how to uh, ship ice long distances. Uh, that came from observing the uh, the physics and environments of his own family's ice house. You know, he noticed that if ice blocks were stacked tightly together so that air couldn't easily breeze between them, um, and that if the ice was packed in hay and sawdust and elevated out of its own meltwater, it could actually last through most of of the months of the year. And he recreated those conditions in the hull of a ship. And sure enough, when he reached his first destination, which was actually the Caribbean, he started there before he came to the the southern part of the United States. Uh, He made it with two thirds of his cargo intact, which was, I I think, surprised even him. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's it's not bad. Um, And it took him almost 10 years to make a profit because it took him 10 full years to figure out why people weren't buying ice, which was, you know, largely for those reasons we just discussed that they just didn't know what to do with it. Um, But, you know, as soon as he showed people how to make a cocktail on the rocks or uh, an icy dessert, it, it changed minds and uh, opened up new possibilities. I want to talk as well about ice cream's popularity because there's some interesting things here um, around, uh, Fidel Castro. Um, I know Thomas Jefferson, you mentioned in the book, was a big lover of ice cream. So let's talk a little bit about how ice cream became popular because it actually became popular quite early on in ice's history. Yeah, yeah. And largely um, because of Tudor's marketing plan and his use of ice cream to sell ice. So one of the first places that he sought to sell ice was in Cuba. He went to Havana where um, nobody trusted him. 
<laughs> and his strange, uh, you know, cold blocks that melted away. But everybody trusted their local barista because cafe culture was dominant in, in Cuba. And so he convinced, uh, you know, cafe owners and, and baristas uh, to make ice cream and people loved it. I mean, to say that they loved it was an understatement. Um, it became so popular uh, among the Cuban people that during the 1950s, when Fidel Castro was coming to power, um, ice cream for the people became a rallying cry among revolutionaries. And Fidel Castro actually opened the largest ice cream parlor in the world. Um, that I believe is still standing today. Um, and the other interesting anecdote I, I love about, you know, Castro and ice cream is that um, during the the Cold War and the uh, the embargo between the United States and and Cuba, uh, Castro actually sent uh, an ambassador to Canada to get one of each flavor of Howard Johnson's. <laughs> <laughs> to, to satisfy his his own appetite for the stuff. Um, so yeah, ice cream just became a, a huge phenomenon in that country. Well, I'm glad to hear it because ice cream is one of my most favorite things. So it pleases me to know <laughs> that I'm amongst good company. <laughs> <laughs> it was also really interesting to hear about the rise and fall to some extent of ice cream peddlers and then moving on to ice cream trucks. Uh, which I found really fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the popularity of ice cream uh, among the people in the United States happened largely um, because of the work of Black entrepreneurs and immigrants. So, um, you know, in the, in the early to mid-19th century, um, confectioneries and places called pleasure gardens, which were these outdoor park-like spaces where you know, desserts and uh, cold drinks were served. They were, um, for the most part, segregated, uh, racially segregated and and class segregated. Um, they were really just the domain of, of white, wealthy people. And it was during this time that many Black entrepreneurs opened their own uh, confectionaries and pleasure gardens that were open to everybody and had a, uh, either were free uh, to enter or had a, a low cost to enter, unlike these other places. And it was in these uh, confectionaries and um, pleasure gardens owned by, by Black Americans that many, many, many Americans got their very first taste of ice cream. And it would never have become popular uh, if it weren't for these places because, you know, again, ice cream was really expensive to make. And so people didn't just make it in their, in their homes, you know, that they would the way they would 150 years later. Um, so that sparked an appetite for ice cream. And then we get to the late 19th century when um, ice cream peddlers uh, became quite uh, common. Um, these were mostly uh, immigrants, largely Italian immigrants, who um, sold uh, ice cream um, in, a, in a way that you, you might, if you're walking through, say, oh, Central Park in New York City today, and you might see a cart you know, uh, and somebody selling selling ice cream. Um, many of the these early ice cream peddlers had carts, or if they, they couldn't afford a cart, they would have uh, something like a backpack that held containers of ice cream. And they would sell it in tiny 
thimble-sized dishes that, um, again, was <laughs> the moment in history where today it kind of turns the stomach to think about how this worked. Um, they would sell the, the thimble full of ice cream for, say, a penny or something, and then the client would hand the dish back, and then the ice cream peddler would just kind of swish it around in some gray water to clean it, uh, fill it again, and then give it to the next customer. So... <laughs> Um, suffice it to say, uh, a lot of disease was uh, transferred this way. A lot of people got sick. And, um, you know, for a while there, it, it looked like that ice cream was, you know, may, may not have lasted much longer because there was a lot of public doubt about whether ice cream was, was safe for consumption. Um, and so it was not long after that, that you know, the, the rise in ice cream trucks and with sanitation rules <laughs> uh, came about and, and took the business to new heights. Well, I'm glad to know ice cream was able to survive uh, <laughs> long enough for me to get to be able to have some of them. <laughs> well, same. Um, I also want to talk about uh, John Gorey, who was a figure that I didn't know about and has obviously a, has a very interesting past with ice and to some extent also one that was very overshadowed because a lot of what he did um, was not recognized while he was alive. And I think probably not really recognized after he died either, because a lot of his work was sort of usurped by other people and he was sort of forgotten in the story of ice. So can you tell us a little bit about John Gorey and what he did? Yeah, so John Gorey was a doctor who lived in the tiny port town of Apalachicola, Florida in the 1840s. And he was originally uh, from uh, South Carolina. He got his medical degree in New York and he ended up going to Florida of all places. Uh, I say of all places because at the time, I mean, Florida wasn't even officially a state. You know, it was still a, a territory um, that was, uh, you know, barely settled. Um, but he decided to go there because of yellow fever. Um, you know, this was a disease that ravaged the American South every year. Uh, thousands of people died from it. Um, and it was a heck of a way to go. You know, it was just it was a disease that did a real violence to the human body. And he wanted to to, to help the people who were sick and to to seek a cure for it. And so when he arrived, um, you know, something something to keep in mind is that doctors at this time didn't know that yellow fever was transmitted by mosquitoes. They had no idea. You know, all that John Gorey knew is that in places like Apalachicola, which were surrounded by swamps and, and other forms of water, it was especially bad. Uh, and that it got worse in the summer months and it started to wane with the, the winter months. And so he thought, if I can get the temperature of my patient's body to mimic the cycle of the seasons, that is, I can get their body to cool down, then he thought he could cure yellow fever. But this was the 1840s. Um, there was, you know, no, you know, air conditioning to speak of. There was barely a grocery store. And the only way that he knew to artificially cool a human body was with ice. But ice didn't form naturally there, and the ice trade had only just arrived in the state, and so it was very expensive to purchase. Uh, locals referred to ice as white gold at this time. So 
he knew if he was going to get enough ice to quote unquote cure his patients, he was going to have to make it himself. So he experimented for uh, a few years and finally ended up building a machine that was slow to produce ice, but once it got going, it could produce a lot of it. And it was a machine that was built on um, the same compression-like physics uh, and properties that um, many conventional refrigerators use today. And uh, he, so yeah, so he ended up creating a ton of ice and he announced his invention um, at a local party that was thrown by the um, the French consul, uh, who in July, you know, wanted to celebrate Bastille Day and cool all of his fancy guests with iced wine. And of course, John Gorey thought this is the perfect place to do it. You know, there's lots of wealthy people here. Maybe they can give me the money to to uh, you know scale up this invention and and get it into you know, different communities. Um, he also thought people would respond with gratitude and excitement and, and joy. And the opposite happened. Uh, people responded with cries of blasphemy, um, of saying things like, how dare a mere man create ice? Only God Almighty can create ice. There were newspaper headlines that appeared up and down the eastern seaboard with uh, saying things like, there's this crank down in Florida that thinks he can create ice better than God. Um, and his reputation was ruined. And just a few years later, he uh, ended up catching a malarial disease, probably yellow fever, uh, and died penniless with his reputation in tatters. And then, of course, uh, some years after he died his machine did take off. It did. It did. So it took, uh, essentially it took a, a war. It took the American civil war in order for the machine to take off. And the reason was because the South was cut off uh, via embargo from shipments from the North. And, you know, by time we get to the 1860s, you know, the, the American South was greatly dependent upon ice for preserving their food that they were utilizing it a little bit in medicine, though there was still some suspicion around cold and health, um, but certainly, certainly was used in in food. And suddenly, ice wasn't available anymore. Um, and so, uh, you know, Gorey's uh, patents um, and other uh, blueprints that were suspiciously um, uh, similar <laughs> to Gorey's patents uh, surfaced. And not only ice machines, but giant ice plants were built um, by the end of the 1860s throughout the major cities uh, in the American South. And that was the moment when ice became practically ubiquitous because mechanically made ice uh, lowered the price of ice. It made it uh, more available. Um, it didn't matter if it was a warm winter in the North, people could get ice regardless. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that industry uh, kind of helped to revitalize um, the American South post-Civil War, you know, after um, slavery was outlawed and the American South was seeking a new economic structure. So we've got a situation where now for the first time we can create large amounts of ice mechanically. We're not reliant on mother nature, on the weather, on being located in a part of the world where uh, the weather can freeze thing, uh, freeze water at certain times. Talk a little bit about that 
um, battle between the natural ice and the machine created ice because there was a transition there and there was a lot of toing and froing. And again, marketing <laughs> comes in quite heavily in the battle of these titans. Well, there's no greater threat to the natural uh, ice uh, industry's empire than mechanically made ice. Right. And so, um, you know, recognizing that fact, uh, the mechanical ice companies marketed their ice as a pure, cleaner uh, and ultimately cheaper substance. And and they weren't necessarily wrong to do so. Their ice was cleaner. <laughs> uh, it certainly was um, was more pure. Uh, and the you know naturalized company you know fought back you know, by saying things like, well, you know this is this isn't true ice because it's not naturally made, right? It's it's made in the artificial environments of a factory, and and our ice is the real ice. And there was this brief moment in history where natural ice became a, a luxury item again because of that marketing plan, though. I mean, this was also the peak of the industrial revolution. <laughs> so natural ice was very dirty and people got sick. And I was they... <laughs> going to say, this is happening right around the time when water pollution must have just been getting real bad, real bad. Oh, so bad. Cholera outbreaks were quite common. Um, and so, you know, for all, for all of their marketing attempts, you know, the natural ice industry was not long for the world um, because you just, you could not ingest their... Their, you could not ingest their um, their substance. Um, you know, uh, I, I I'm trying to imagine drinking out of the Connecticut River or the Hudson, um, or you know, or any you know major throughway in the world. Um, no, I mean, it's it's disgusting. You don't want that in your body. And in the you know the peak of the Industrial Revolution, it was arguably worse. Oh. In this era, of course, we're not talking about refrigerators yet in people's homes. We're talking about ice boxes. We're we're talking about people having somebody come to your house and bring in a literal large block of ice and put it in a box somewhere in your home uh, that is designed to hold that ice, uh, which is a very different way than we think about it now. Um, and that. Uh, would have been a very interesting job to have. And I know that there were, you mentioned in the book, there was a lot of rumors about the ice men and ice delivery. <laughs> yeah, this was one of my favorite uh, parts of my research was, um, you know, during the late 19th and early 20th century, when the ice industry was at its peak, um, there were thousands of ice men um, delivering these blocks of ice uh, to customers. And, you know, these ice men, they were, they were the end of the cold chain, so to speak, right? They were the people that got the ice out of the ice companies, factories or ice houses and what have you, and into the ice boxes. And these were 50 pound blocks of ice, right? Or, or heavier. And so these were, you know, very brawny, strong men because they had to be to to carry these uh these blocks of ice sometimes up six flights of stairs or more if we're talking you know in places like New York City or something and so um there was something about you know that that peculiar combination of of sweat and brawniness that just sparked the romantic imagination of Americans everywhere and in my research i found 
numerous songs, popular songs, um, with lyrics about housewives falling in love with the Icemen, um, or examples of Valentine's Day cards that included romantic puns about the Icemen. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's Eugene O'Neill's famous play, The Iceman Cometh, whose title is derived from the punchline of the joke the protagonist tells about his wife having an affair with the Iceman. So there was something in the air or in the water, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> uh, about this. And I thought, how peculiar, because Icemen weren't the only delivery men of the age. You know, there were milkmen, there were mailmen. So like, why the Iceman? And then it occurred to me that of all the delivery people of this time, the Iceman was the only one to actually come inside the house, to cross what many folks would have considered to be that forbidden threshold into the domestic sphere, uh, where he would be alone with a woman, uh, usually during the day, because that's when he made his deliveries, while you know her husband was at work. And this was a time when there was a lot of anxiety about women being alone with men who weren't their husband. Um, and so uh, it created a romantic imagination and, and also a very anxious um, perception of who the Iceman was. And interestingly enough, that uh, that anxiety seemed to peak during uh, the world wars when you know more husbands than ever were not at home because they were overseas fighting. Um, you know, one of my my favorite cultural uh uh, artifacts to come out of this time about this phenomenon was a song that was written in the 1930s that was later popularized by Ray Charles that went something like, and I'm going to get it wrong, the exact words wrong, but the lyrics were something like, I'm moving to the outskirts of town where I'm buying my woman a Frigidaire so that Iceman don't come around. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about the fact that potentially the perk of not having to have ice than ice men deliver ice might have convinced more people to buy a fridge if they were on the <laughs> fence. It just sort of didn't occur to me. But if if people are feeling a lot of anxiety about that at that time, then I can see how potentially that might have like pushed more people into getting the fridge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of my favorite things to come out of the Icebox era and little facts from your book was that um, during the First World War, uh, obviously a lot of men were overseas fighting and there was ice delivery happening. I think this was the last sort of gasp of the natural ice industry um, due to the war. And so a lot of the ice was being delivered by women, but the rumors persisted. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. Um, you know, women uh, did become the the icemen or the the ice delivery um, people of of the era. And oh yeah, yeah the 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 rumors did not dissipate. It's it was a pretty wild time. Different kind of anxiety. Exactly. <laughs> um, I also want to talk about the birth of convenience stores, because I had no idea that this sort of very ubiquitous um, shop building feature of North America was so inherently tied into the ice industry. I found this delightful. So could you talk a little bit about the history of the convenience store? Definitely. There is a strong historical reason for why so many people think of convenience stores when they need to buy a bag of ice. 
<laughs> so it goes back to um, the early uh, 20th century to Texas, when an ice company called the Southland Ice Company um, had shops, uh, you know, throughout the Dallas area and eventually throughout the the state of Texas. And um, you know what the the owner of this store realized is that a lot of customers were coming to the, their ice dock, um, usually just right after running other errands. So they would stop by after visiting a grocery store or something. And, and they always heard the same types of grumblings, the, oh, shoot, I forgot the gallon of milk or, oh, you know, doggone it, I, I, I forgot to pick up a loaf of bread. And so what they thought was, Let's make it extra convenient for them to stock some kitchen staples. And so they did. They alongside the the ice that they sold, they started selling things like milk and bread and pieces of fruit and you know other little treats that they could grab on the on the way home. And this model became so popular that it started to compete with local grocery stores. And um and the owners thought, well, you know, this is great. Let's keep the business going. And so they expanded the hours. And uh, by the time we get to uh, World War II, you know, the ice industry is in its last gasp because electric refrigeration is everywhere. And still identifying as an ice company didn't make a lot of sense. So they took a hard look at what is working for them, which is that, you know, they're selling all of these other these items. Um, many of these stores installed uh, gas tanks because in Texas, so many people would stop by these places in cars to pick up their their ice and their their staples. And they decided to keep that model. And then instead of calling themselves an ice company, they would name themselves after their extended hours. And the 7-Eleven was born. I love that story. <laughs> It is, it's always fascinating to hear the origin stories of things that are so normalized um, to figure out how they came to be. Uh, similarly with um, ice machines in hotels, uh, that was a fascinating story to hear about as well. I love that story too, um, because it's a story that originates in just frustration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I always, how many I always... things in life do we create because of pure frustration? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So if we go back to the early 1950s, um, you know, the ice trade and then the uh, eventual rise in electric refrigeration meant that ice was already ubiquitous in the United States. It was it was everywhere, except when you're taking a road trip. Um, you know, people had it in their homes. Um, you know, if they go out to eat, they could get ice in their water or their their cold drink. But convenience stores uh, still were very new and many had not cropped up outside of Texas yet. Uh, the grocery stores still weren't selling ice. So there weren't ways to get ice, um, you know, to, to fill, you know, your cooler, which was also a very new invention during the early 1950s, if you're on the road. And this had become, that was a problem for people who had come to depend on ice, you know, people who wanted a cool drink, they wanted to keep their sandwiches cold, for, you know, for several hours at a time. Um, and this was of particular frustration uh, to a man um, who, uh, in the early 1950s, decided to take a road trip uh, to Washington. Washington, D.C. with his wife and his children and couldn't find the ice that he needed to keep his family happy. 
And moreover, he was very frustrated at the fact that so many roadside motels that his family could afford charged by the child. Like this was a pretty standard practice back then. And he had a lot of kids. He had something like four or five kids. And so when he got back home, he drafted a plan that would solve both of these problems. He wanted a, uh, a motel or a hotel that had standardized pricing, uh, you know, a comfortable bed for everybody in the family, and crucially, had ice available <laughs> at a moment's notice so that people stopping on whatever, you know, wherever destination they're going could refill their their cooler and could have ice. Um, that man uh, ended up launching the first um, Holiday Inn <laughs> uh, within, within the decade. And by the time I wrote this book, there's something like 1,100 Holiday Inns uh, in operation around the world. And last I checked, there is still an ice machine on every single floor. That's fascinating to me. It's Growing up in North America, I remember ice machines as a kid, um, and I remember you know being able to if you're staying in a hotel, go down, get a, a thing of ice, you know, get a. They usually have like big cups that you could go and scoop ice out, um, or you get like the the canisters that are just designed for ice. Um, and I hadn't really realized it, but since I moved over to the UK, it's definitely something I haven't seen a lot of in hotels on this side of the ocean, uh, which I find kind of interesting. It wasn't something I kind of connected the dots for until reading your book. And now I'm a little bit annoyed that I can't find ice so easily in hotels. It's, you know what, ice in hotels is quite handy. (laughs) It, It really is for ways you don't even think until it's not there anymore. Exactly. Like if you've been out all day and you've turned an ankle uh, and you just need some ice, it's so straightforward to just go and get some. And it's it's a problem solved so quickly. Um, there were a few times on a holiday recently where I needed ice uh, for an ankle and sometimes trying to find where I could get ice. And if there was a bag or something I could put it in was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. You know, I, I said this uh, to my husband that before I wrote this book, ice was something I didn't think about until I'd run out of it. (laughs) Mm, Yes. Yes. It's yeah. Until you have no ice, you don't really think about it at all. And then when you need it and don't have it, it's very frustrating. Exactly. Um, No conversation about ice, of course, could um, be complete without uh, discussion of the refrigerator. So when did we start to get refrigerators in homes? Well, in the 1920s and 1930s is when refrigerators um, started to be made on an assembly line. And that was really important because that meant that the price of refrigerators came down and that refrigerators uh, were standardized in their construction. Before this time, not only were refrigerators uh, very expensive, but they were poorly made. And to get a piece uh, to replace a broken part was was difficult because all of them were made differently. Um, so the 20s and 30s was about the time that refrigerators became affordable, um, they became uh, standardized, and they started to be in, in more American homes. And then by the end of the 1930s, you know, thanks to FDR's Rural Electrification Act that brought electricity to um, you know, almost every house in the United States, then that was the, the launching point, you know, the, the point at which the refrigerator um, became something that anybody 
could own. And so then just but one decade later, by the time we get to the 1950s, to own a refrigerator was on par with owning a car or a television set. It was a sign that you had arrived at the American middle class. Of course, as with all industries, the ice industry did not go gently into the good night when the refrigerator came up. Once again, there was a little bit of a, a marketing throwdown to try and get people not to make ice in their own homes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, their uh, ice executives held conferences with subtitles like the writing is on the wall. <laughs> um, you know, many employed women to uh, visit homes and um, with pamphlets about why uh, ice boxes were better than refrigerators. And these women salespeople were encouraged to mention the Iceman and wink. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but, you know, there's just at the end of the day, you know, refrigerators, um, they were more reliable. Um, uh, and they didn't leak water everywhere. Um, and, you know, they were expensive to run because, you know, they were huge energy guzzlers back then, just kind of like they are today, only they were worse back then. But the cost was predictable because the utility bill was something that tended to be relatively stable, whereas the cost of ice um, would always be dependent upon whether you know, the ice froze, you know, the, before rivers and lakes froze the winter before or that a mechanical ice company could keep up. I mean, so the price of ice was constantly fluctuating and an electric refrigerator was um, was a cost that you could predict. So for, yeah, for all of those reasons, they, um, they became quite popular. And within a decade, um, you know, uh, ice, the ice box, disappeared. I mean, between 1949 and 1959, um, iceboxes went from being in more than half uh, homes in America to being in practically none. So refrigerators have obviously changed the way we think about food storage in our homes. Um, they've added convenience where we're able to buy more food and keep it for longer than we could before. Obviously, the chest freezer, just freezers in general, also uh, made a big difference for a lot of people. But the downside of that is, of course, that the refrigerators and freezers are a massive source of CO2 output. They are. So one of the first companies to mass produce refrigerators at the turn of the 20th century was General Electric. And it's not a coincidence that those early refrigerators were enormous energy sucks. They were good for GE's bottom line. And over time, you know, thanks to improvements in technology and to the implementation of state and federal standards, refrigerators have gotten a lot better in that regard. Um, but they are in the average uh, American's household, at least they are the, the appliance that draws the most energy. And collectively, the cooling industry, you know, which is refrigerators uh, and air conditioners, they contribute to 10% of global carbon emissions, which is not insignificant. That is, I mean, it sound 10% sounds negligible when we're talking about the whole world that number is big, right? That's a huge number. It's a huge number. It's it's a, yeah, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of tons. 
So there does seem to be an increased focus on trying to make refrigerators more and more energy efficient. There's Energy Star ratings. That seems to be a thing that more people are a little bit more aware of. Um, But I often look at information. um, We had to buy a fridge a couple of years ago and sometimes figuring out which one actually is energy efficient and what all these energy efficiency ratings mean is very tricky. Yeah, it's an imperfect system, certainly better than nothing. But one of the problems with the Energy Star rating systems is that they don't make nuanced distinctions between tiny differences in manufactured models, right? So for example, if you wanted a a fridge that had a freezer and an automated ice maker, then, you know, Energy Star would look at, you know, 10 you know, they would group 10 of those types of fridges together and say, well, these 10 types are, you know, more energy efficient than, you know, this other type over here that has an even larger ice maker, right? But what it doesn't do is then look at the nuances between those 10 fridges and look at, you know, the construction quality, at the types of material used, um, whether the the motor on the ice machine ever actually shuts off. (laughs) Right. Right. And so everything in that category would receive the same energy star rating. But one could be, as one journalist put it to me, a carbon bomb, you know, in your in your house. Um, It just sucks up an enormous amount of energy, much more than another that's in the same category. Um, You know, there recently uh, there have been some some changes, you know, to the energy star rating system. But it still is still has a ways to go. You know, it's still imperfect. We also, of course, at some point moved from CFCs used in refrigerators to HFCs when we found out that chlorofluorocarbons were causing some major issues. Yeah, you know, the the CFCs um, were uh, were proven to be contributing to ozone decay. And so there was a a national and and to some degree a global push to replace them um, with HFCs. Uh, which are much better for the ozone, but they are extremely potent greenhouse gases. And, you know, when a refrigerator reaches the end of its life, those gases escape um, and contribute to the global warming scenario we find ourselves in now. Um, And there aren't, at least in the United States, any federal, and I don't think there are any state standards um, that uh, require um, a person to dispose of their refrigerator in a safe way. So, you know, technically speaking, there's nothing on the books that says I can't bring my old dead refrigerator out to the backyard, smash it with a hammer, (laughs) right? And leave it. Um, You know, I could go do that if I wanted. Um, So, you know, so HFCs continue to be, to be a big problem. Um, And, you know, I, I think about that a lot, you know, as somebody who cares a lot about the earth and as somebody who wants to live as gently on the planet as possible, you know, I had to ask myself, you know, what, what does it mean that I, am like so many fellow Americans obsessed with ice. And I don't want to give up my ice anytime soon. And so I I posed that question to, you know, several experts and scientists and much, you know, to my delight, I realized that this is a problem that a lot of smart people are thinking about. And already underway are experiments with new types of technologies that 
you know, if scaled up, could replace the uh, conventional refrigerators in our homes now. And they are much safer for the environment. They draw far less energy and they replace conventional refrigerants with other types of materials that don't have nearly the same impact on the environment. Well, it's good to know that we're at least someone, somewhere, people are trying to improve these things that we've become so reliant on. I can't really, this is one of the biggest challenges with modern living, in particular, modern Western living in a world where we are trying to think about our impact on the environment and the climate and the world in general is I can't fathom what life looks like without a refrigerator. So I am to some extent very reliant on somebody to make a better refrigerator. (laughs) Well, if, you know, writing the history of the ice industry has taught me anything, it's that um, people are willing to make widespread changes very quickly. Um, you know, they just, they need a, a compelling technology and frankly, they need a good marketing plan. <laughs> Definitely a good marketing plan. Uh, your book is probably also a great series of case studies for anybody studying the power of marketing and the history of marketing. There are some real bangers um, <laughs> in there. Uh, just stories of cre- having to create both the supply, but also the demand, which is something we just assume is all always there that you can't supply anything without first having a demand. But actually, sometimes you have to create the demand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that was true in 1806 and it's true in 2023. Absolutely. Well, Amy, we could talk for another hour. Uh, We didn't even get to touch on ice sports, um, but I will let our listeners go pick up your book so that they can read about the boom of ice castles and the history of ice sports in North America. All super fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. And if you want to learn more about Amy Brady, her writing or her book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity, you can find links in the show notes for this episode, both in the app you're listening to us right now in and at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. The show is produced by Bethany Brookshire and Rochelle Saunders and is edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Carolyn Wilkie, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 